When you visit the largest lake in South America, take time to enjoy more than the gorgeous scenery. So when you go to the lake, you're not just visiting any body of water, you're visiting the place that, according to myth, gave the Andes its life. Coming up, it's a guide to Lake Titicaca, where you may feel you've stepped back centuries in time. Latino cultures are becoming a major part of North American society, and not just in border states and the big cities. Places you may not imagine, like Georgia, has almost a million Latinos today. North Carolina is about to have a million Latinos. The founder of Latino Decisions explains recent trends among Hispanics here in the USA. We'll also explore South Carolina's low country, where the coastal Gullah communities provide a living link to that region's plantation history. Today, even, true Gullahs still speak a sort of a Creole-type language that's a mixture between African tribal languages and English and so forth. It's all in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. When you're invited to a barbecue in the low country of South Carolina, chances are you'll be having oysters. Coming up, a northern immigrant to Hilton Head Island shares the region's highlights that he's been enjoying and gives us some tips for exploring the coastal flatlands between Charleston and Savannah. Also in the hour ahead, the co-founder of a public opinion firm that focuses on Latinos in the United States explains how they've become the largest ethnic group in California and are poised to do the same in just a few years in Texas. We'll get a better understanding of trends among the growing Hispanic portion of the USA. Let's start out today's travel with Rick Steves way south of the border, in the highlands of the Andes that border Peru and Bolivia. Carolina Miranda has been with us in the past to guide us along the Inca Trail to Machu Picchu. Today, she leads us to a lake with a name that might make many American school kids giggle. But Lake Titicaca is where the Incas believe life began. And it's where you can continue to find indigenous communities following a traditional way of life. Carolina, it's good to have you back. Thank you for having me. Tell us about this lake. It sounds like an amazing place. Well, this lake is so important to Inca lore in Peru. It is an inveterate part of the culture. The, the, as the story goes, the creation myth of the Incas is that Manco Inca and his sister Mama Ocllo emerged from the lake and went and took the Inca people to Cusco and there founded the Inca civilization. So when you go to the lake, you're not just visiting any body of water. You're visiting the place that, according to myth, gave the Andes its life. It's staggeringly high at more than 12,000 feet above sea level, but it is one of the most beautiful things that you can see in Peru. These crystalline sapphire waters bounded on all sides by these coffee-colored mountains, and, and you see people on boats and still working on reed boats as well in the areas. It, it really is one of the more remarkable, I think, surreal sites that you can see in Peru. Now, I understand there are different cultures living on different islands on the lake? Yes. The area around Lake Titicaca represents sort of a border of sorts. I mean, the, the Inca Empire settled uh, this area in, in about the 1400s. But this has also been an Aymara stronghold, which was a culture from Bolivia. So this Lake Titicaca was where they had some overlap. So you have islands that are the descendants of Incas, the Quechua, and then you have others that are Aymara. And then you have the floating islands of the Uros people who speak Aymara but are a different culture. So it's kind of this hotbed of different indigenous cultures all in one place, all basically surviving off the water. So Carolina, when you think about... Peruvian indigenous peoples, you think of these colorful knit and woven uh, scarves and hats and so on. Tell us about that culture and 
what it means to the people on the Isla Tequile. That's the one with the Quechan-speaking people, right? Yes. I think, well, each culture in, in Peru is represented to some degree by the textiles that they make. Because the Andes is so full of nooks and crannies, it's like each place will have a hat that maybe is specific to that region or a type of dress. And in the Isla Tequila and Amantani, which are the Quechua Islands, the men still wear the traditional dress, as do the women. They wear these very sort of wide skirts and layers. They wear layer upon layer of skirts. So one woman might be wearing, say, five or six skirts, sometimes with satin in between. And it's considered a very feminine uh, look. And then the men wear uh, the traditional chuyo hat, which is that hat that I think most folks identify with the Andes with the ear flaps uh, mm, that, that yeah. comes up in a point, maybe with a little pompon on top and then the ear flaps that cover the ears, which is great in that cold uh, weather of the highlands. So you're going to you go to Taquil and you're going to see the men wearing uh, one color of outfit. They tend to wear more like a, a cream colored uh, white outfits with a, a, a brightly woven knit bag to hold their things that they sling over their shoulders, including their coca leaves, because everyone in the area chews coca. And then maybe you go to the floating islands of the Uros and the women wear these very different hats, which are pointy and they kind of hang back behind your head. And they also wear the very sort of big uh, billowy skirts. So each place has a, a sort of a color theme or a type of style that is very unique to that place. Carolina Miranda is our guide to Lake Titicaca on Travel with Rick Steves. After working as a lead writer on Peru for Lonely Planet, Carolina has recently started writing the arts and culture blog for the Los Angeles Times. We're at 877-333-7425. And Gail's calling in from Albany in Oregon. Hi, Gail. What's your interest in Peru? Hi. Um, Forty years ago, we went to Lake Titicaca, took a train from La Paz to the lake in an overnight boat. I don't know if that's still available. Um, and, and landed in Puno. And we're going back in a year, and I'm really interested in the, it's called the Isla del Sol. I think it might actually be in Bolivia, but it's supposed to have some special um, importance in the Inca story, and I also wanted to know the practicalities of visiting there. Well, that is on the Bolivian side. It's an island that's accessed off, off of the sort of southeastern uh, edge of the lake. If you were approaching it from Peru, you could definitely visit it uh, from Puno, but it would require crossing into Bolivia and basing out of the little village of Copacabana, which is on the Bolivian side. So you do need a passport. And if you're a U.S. citizen, the Bolivian government requires now all U.S. citizens to have a visa. And that visa is um, 135 U.S. dollars. So you can get that at a Bolivian uh, embassy in advance. Or they'll, if you're part of a tour group or you take the bus to Copacabana, you can easily buy them at the um, right at the border. Okay. And what about actually visiting the island then? Copacabana, the little village uh, on, on Lake Titicaca on the Bolivian side, has tons of outfitters that arrange uh, that trip. And there are also outfitters in Puno that can sometimes arrange, they, they can arrange all of the transfers as well. So it's really easy to do. Okay. And what is, is it a good, interesting spot to visit, or am I just going with the name? <laughs> it sounds good. It is really beautiful, and it has very important history, because that is exactly the point in the lake where Manco Inca and Mama Oclio supposedly emerged from the, la the lake and created the entire Inca civilization. So it is a very important spot in the lake. 
It's gorgeous. As I always recommend to people, if you're going to take the trouble to go, just spend the night because that's where you really get the experience of the lake. When you stay on the towns on the coast, you're getting lights and traffic and bars and restaurants. And when you stay in the villages on the lake, you're getting this very sort of pure experience. It's very quiet. The sky is crystal clear. You can, uh, when we were there, we saw the Milky Way. I mean, it really is a remarkable experience, but it's worth it to take the time to spend the night on the island. Okay. Okay. So that's good. Thank you very much for the information. No Thanks problem. Thanks for your call, Gail. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Carolina Miranda. We're talking about Peru. Carolina is one of the authors of the Lonely Planet Guidebook to Peru. And Carolina, that is the big issue, you know, where to spend the night to get the best experience. And let's just uh, talk a little bit about that. First of all, you've got the the man-made floating islands, which are more touristic. You could sleep there, but you could also sleep on the other islands with the more traditional cultures. Tell us the pros and cons of the floating islands, uh, how you get out to the islands, and where you would spend the night. All of the islands are pretty touristy, but I think it all depends on how you handle it. The vast majority of people who who go to this area do an island hopping day trip. So they start at the port in Puno, then they hit the floating islands, then they hit Tequil, then they hit Amantani. They have lunch somewhere along Mm. the way, and then they're back to Puno and they're off to the next stop. And they've spent, you know, probably Mm. a total of six Mm -hmm. hours. And what about the floating islands? What is, what is the, the floating, floating islands? Island? On my last trip, actually just last month, I spent the night on the floating islands. And that's my recommendation to people. It's like, go spend a night on one of the islands, whether it's the floating island or Taquila or Montani, you're going to experience the lake in a completely different way. And so we spent the night on the floating islands of the Uros, the Isla Cantati. And those uh, are literally floating, called. made out of reeds. They're literally floating. They're made out of reeds that are anchored to other reeds in shallow parts of the lake. By the descendants of the Uros people, they've lived this way for, for centuries. And it was a really incredible experience because most people spend a sum total of 40 minutes on the floating islands. We Mm. spent more than a day. Uh, We hung out with the family that lived there. They took us fishing on their reed boat. We spent the night in this incredibly quiet, peaceful Mm. place where all we heard were kind of the quacks of the ducks, you know, working their way around around the reeds. And they showed us how they built the islands. Uh, They showed us the crafts that they make, the textiles that they make. And so what you're having is a much more intimate, I think, revealing experience than if you do the the island hopping. So there's the invasion every day of the the visitors that do the predictable three-island island hop trip in six hours. And if you spend the night, you experience a different Lake Titicaca. Tell us to get the richest, like, staying with the local people experience. What kind of place would you stay in and what would that be like? Well, all of the islands have a rotating, what they call a community tourism system. So you sign up with an outfitter and say, for example, for Tequila or Montani, and it's a rotating selection of families that basically the families take turns holding tourists. That mm-hmm. way, no one family gets all the business. Or So it is, you have to be a little bit flexible. You know, you're not mm-hmm. booking a B&B. <laughs> you're going right. to go stay with a family and experience something. So, um, so like a it great is a little system. bit, oh, it's, it, it, it works, it works really well. And then it, it also means that as a traveler, you just kind of give yourself over to this family. I feel like so much of travel this day is kind of how can I manage my experience? So what do you do? You're sitting some... in their little living room and they're staring at you and you're staring at them? 
Well, in the case of the Uros, usually all of these folks have a separate accommodations for the tourists. They've all uh-huh. built like a separate room with separate bathroom facilities on the side. So you do have your own place to sleep. But then come dinner time, there's a communal place usually where everyone sits together and has a meal together. Uh, there might be a little bit of a, of a public area where you hang out and get to play with their kids during the day. Uh, in the morning on the Udos Island, I got up early in the morning and I just sat. They had some sitting chairs with a view of the lake and read and, and hung out and just watched the mm. lake. So you're spending time with the family. They do offer you activities. They invite you to help with things. You know, they might say, hey, we're going fishing. Why don't we all get dressed up and go fishing? And they pile you into the boat and we went out and we helped them pull the nets in. And so... So it's not like they're going to grab you and just ditch you there either. There really is this sense that they're going to share what their daily life is about with you. You're in Lake Titicaca. Carolina Miranda, thanks so much for sharing that fascinating slice of Peru. Thank you so much for having me. We'll get a guided introduction to the South Carolina Lowcountry in just a bit. Up next, we'll examine the growth of the Hispanic population in the United States with the co-founder of one of the largest public opinion firms in the U.S. that specializes in the Latino demographic. Matt Barreto explains trends in Latino America next on Travel with Rick Steves. Hello, my name is Barry Maloney from County Cork on the south coast of Ireland, and I'm going to share with you my favorite Irish saying. In the Irish language, the saying goes, On te harvas scale kugat, tarfig she da scale uat, which means, He who comes with a story will bring two away from you. And I love that saying because it makes me think about the way the Irish love to talk, share stories, and bring stories from the place. Gossip, basically. We love gossip. In the 2012 presidential election, Latinos made history. Their part of the electorate rose to its highest level ever, at 10% of the vote. And the role of Latinos in the United States is only getting stronger. Every month, another 73,000 Latinos turn 18. They're the largest minority group in half of the states already, and by the middle of this century, Latinos are expected to make up a quarter of the U.S. population. Dr. Matt Barreto joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to explain just who comprises the Latino demographic of the U.S. population and how Latinos are poised to influence the country's politics and priorities. Dr. Barreto is on the faculty of UCLA, and he's the co-founder of the nonprofit Latino Decisions, a public opinion and research firm. He discusses these trends in his book called Latino America. Matt, thanks for being here. It's my pleasure, Rick. Boy, there's some exciting changes demographically in our country. Now, first of all, when you think of the trends, in which states is the Latino demographic trends the most potentially impactful? Well, I think most people right now today are looking at the state of Texas. This is an interesting state because it's long had a huge Latino population, was part of Mexico for so many years. But if you look at the growth of the Latino population in Texas, it's really taking off right now. And the reason it's so interesting there is that this is a state that could be in political transition as well. As that population grows, a lot of people are going to be watching Texas and what are the implications of a rapidly growing Latino population. So that's population. huge in the Electoral College. And what about California? 
Well, California has by far the largest Latino population. It has a huge Latino population, has had a large Latino population, and that's one where they went through their transition in the 1990s. You know, California had voted Republican in nine out of 10 presidential elections. As the Latino population came into California, came into the electorate, it transitioned, and now it's heavily Democratic. Now, when we think of so many Latinos as part of the electorate, Are these people coming in from south of the border, or are these people who are just a matter of a higher birth rate? And are these people the undocumented population, or are they, you know, documented citizens? Well, that's an excellent question. You started with that quote about the 73,000 per month. It's really changed now, and it's being driven by U.S. births. And we're seeing huge population growth driven by those who are U.S.-born Latino citizens. So this is really nothing to do with the wall, the strength of the wall, or undocumented workers in our country. Exactly. Absolutely right. If not another immigrant comes to the U.S., the Latino population will still double in 20 years. In your book, you talk about it was less than 5% in 1970, 9% 20 years later in 1990, 17% today, 25% of the population. That's right. The trajectory is just really growing. Whoa. When we talk about... Latino, I hear the word Hispanic and Latino, and I'm be your typical white guy, you know? I don't know. What's the difference? <laughs> what, what's the difference between Latino and Hispanic? Well, you know, the census uses the words interchangeably, and I would say most people in the Latino or Hispanic community also use the words interchangeably. Hispanic sort of came on the scene first. It was first put on the census in 1970. Before that, there was no official counts of anyone of Latino or Hispanic heritage. Uh, it was Mexican or Spanish. But After that, the word Latino has become a little more prominent in political circles and academic circles, but really, it's the same term. Hispanic and Latino. That's right. And does that mean anybody south of our border who speaks Spanish? The census defines it as anyone from about, I think, 22 different countries and Spanish-speaking Latin America. It could also include people from Spain, but sometimes people from Spain don't identify as Hispanic or Latino. But anyone from a Spanish-speaking part of the world who's here now in the United States or who has ancestry, because many of those folks have been in the United States and and never migrated here. People from Colorado, New Mexico, uh, these places that were always part of the United States. And that brings up a very interesting adage that you bring up in your book. Some people say, I didn't cross the border, the border crossed me. Yeah, that's absolutely right. There's a very long history of the Latino population in places like New Mexico, Texas, Colorado. They've been there for generations, going back to uh, when New Mexico was founded as a part of uh, the Spanish colony in in northern uh, Mexico. And after the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, when the U.S.-Mexican-American War was over, those people said, hey, suddenly I'm in a new country, but my family heritage has been here for hundreds of years. You still find those families in New Mexico and southern Colorado today. Now, Matt, what is your heritage? Uh, My family heritage is from Peru. That's an interesting thing. Like from Peru or or Ecuador, Colombia, if you look at Europeans, would there be as much diversity there as there would be in Latin America? And also, would it look as homogenous from a Latino point of view as a European or a Caucasian American looking at Latin America? I think that's an excellent point. I mean, I think every culture, when they're looking at other races and ethnicities, other regions of the world, has a tendency to sort of see people as fairly similar. Because if you treated me like a Frenchman and I say, no, my mom and dad are Norwegians, (laughs) I would really be upset about that. Yeah, absolutely. But I think in the Latino community, there's a little more commonality. First of all, you know, it was all parts of uh, Spain at some point. And so there's some common culture, common language, common practices. Those borders in South America and Central America, some of those are very arbitrary. The peoples who are there are a mix of Indigenous, indigenous and Spanish. In Spanish and African blood. Right. There's a very large you know, African population that came during the slave years in uh, Central and South America. 
This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Matt Barreto. He's a professor at UCLA, and he's written a book called Latino America, How America's Most Dynamic Population is Poised to Transform the Politics of Our Nation. Now, that's the premise of your book, Matt, is that there's going to be big changes, and it's going to be relating to the Latino dimension of the American electorate. How so? What What is your bet on what's going to happen? And we know the numbers are growing, but it's also an interesting thing that a lot of Latinos just don't vote. What's the typical turnout? Uh, what, what do Latino leaders have to say about that? Well, that's a very good point. As compared to other races and ethnicities, the Latino population has historically had lower rates of voter participation. But we think, and we identify that with a lot of data and research, is because campaigns weren't doing outreach. They had this stereotype that these are all immigrants and some of them may not even be citizens and they don't vote. So campaigns were not going into the Latino community historically and asking for our vote. That really started changing in about 2000. And by 2008, the first year that Obama ran, he had an extensive Hispanic outreach campaign that reached into many different states. And you started to see the growth and presence of the Latino vote and in states that can make a key difference. Florida, of course, is probably the most critical because it has so many electoral college votes. But now we're seeing Latino voters perhaps poised to make the difference in Nevada, Colorado, New Mexico, possibly Arizona in 2016. But in places you may not imagine, like Georgia has almost a million Latinos today. North Carolina is about to have a million Latinos. So the population is really growing. It's spreading into the southeast. And politically, we think that makes it much more interesting than just if we're talking about California only. Can we generalize about what issues Latinos care about? Is there a pan-ethnic consciousness? Or do Cubans, Mexicans, Puerto Ricans, Salvadorans, do they all have their different passions? We're starting to see the formation and emergence of pan-ethnic consciousness. There's absolutely differences in diversity within the Latino community, whether you're talking about Cubans and Mexicans or first-generation immigrants versus those families in Colorado who have been here for 400 years. But we're starting to see the emergence of what we think is a pan-ethnic consciousness, and it is very closely related to this nasty rhetoric we're finding in politics today about immigration. When these statements are made, they tend to lump all Latinos together, and the reaction to that is one of pan-ethnic identity. Well, if there's a pan-ethnicity, in part it could be because they're on the bottom rung of the working-class ladder struggling to get a decent middle-class livelihood. And I would suppose it is these issues that would tie people from San Salvador and Bolivia and Mexico together. That's right. There is a, a very strong desire in the Latino community to constantly be improving your life and improving your opportunities. Most of the immigrants that came to America from Latin America came for opportunities for their family. And so there's something that does bind, even if you're a second generation U.S.-born Latino who is more successful than your parents, you remember that upbringing and the reason that your parents came to this country. And you've got friends who are struggling where you're lucky and you've got professional parents and so on. That's right. And so you see those uh, commonalities are very, very strong. Even if you yourself are moving into the middle and upper class, you're able to sympathize and empathize because that was your own story. It's very, very common story, that immigrant success story of coming to America, looking for opportunities, and it's one that's common regardless of whether you came from Bolivia or Mexico. Now, Ronald Reagan famously said, Hispanics are Republicans, they just don't know it yet. Now, <laughs> was he saying that the um, moral issues, the abortion, the Catholic kind of issues are going to trump their economic concerns, 
Or was he saying they're pragmatic, conservative economic types that believe everybody should work hard and, and not really depend on the government I for think, help? I think he thought both of those things. And there's some truth in both of those things, that on social issues, Latinos are slightly more conservative, especially immigrants on moral issues. But they have that very strong individual-based work ethic. Uh, nobody's looking for government programs. But at some point, if you're down on your luck, you do want those programs to be there. And I think Reagan's problem and excuse me, not Reagan's problem. The next Republicans who came after him was failing to really understand those nuances in the Latino community and failing to understand that immigrant tradition. And we've seen so much immigrant bashing. You today. got that immigrant tradition of all of our immigrant parents had to work hard from the bottom up. And they started just really without much respect, I think, in this dog eat dog capitalist system. And it's part of the beauty of our society. You work hard to get ahead. But in my experience, when I went down to Central America, I found an innate communalism, not a communism, but a passion for the community. You'd go into a humble village, and if they served chicken once a month, they'd find chicken and Coca-Cola to feed you because you're a visitor, and they were proud, and they wanted to scrape it together and show their hospitality. People would say, mi casa su casa, my house is your house. And it just felt so natural, and everybody helped each other, and it was inspirational to me, and I think that might follow these communities north of the border as well. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, Rick. We see that all the time in our research, that there is a very strong sense of community ties, even for people who are upper income, very successful. They still support things like the Obama health care policy. And this was something that was really troubling a lot of Republicans. They would say, wait a minute, we've identified upper income, highly successful Latinos. They should be against this program. But when we would ask them questions, they would say, everyone, not okay. just me, everyone should have access to health care. And I want to make sure that my brothers and sisters and others in our community. And that goes back to their indigenous roots from south of the border. We think that there is a cultural component here, and that uh -huh. is within the Latino community, the sense of community is a very powerful message and image. Fascinating. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Matt Barreto. He's a professor at UCLA. His book is Latino America, How America's Most Dynamic Population is Poised to Transform the Politics of the Nation. Matt, is there a gender gap in the Latino community? On many issues, there are. Uh, on many issues, we do see uh, women and men with different opinions, uh, especially on household and family uh, values issues. Generalized, what would it be? Well, usually do see women who come to the United States, immigrants to the United States, Latinas, a bit more progressive on issues than their husbands. And we see this especially at the immigrant level. But we're talking about second and third generation U.S. born Latinos. The gender gap starts to get a little bit smaller. But there are some, not to generalize, but there are some immigrant men who do come and continue to have a bit of that machismo, machismo. A, a bit of that uh, mentality where the immigrant women, I think, when they're looking in America, are seeing many more opportunities, mm -hmm. opportunities to get in the workforce, opportunities to perhaps run for office. So your studies have shown over the generations, Latino groups just like Irish and Italian and Scandinavian and so on, they will assimilate and the differences because of their ethnicity will lose their distinctive political edge. We see a little bit of that, and, and an example of that are some of the sort of moral values issues, abortion mm -hmm. and same-sex marriage. We do see that immigrants, when they come, do bring that Latin American culture and the Catholic Church. But by the second and third generation U.S.-born, these folks look much more progressive on abortion and same-sex marriage. Is than, that because fewer young people are going to church and embracing Catholicism like their mothers did two generations ago? I think ago? we're finding that across all uh, races and ethnicities, yeah. but it's also true within the Latino community. There is a bit of a movement, not just in the U.S., but in Latin America as well, away from the Catholic mm. Church. Because I found that the power of the faith south of our border was really so inspirational that 
a lot of American Catholics found great inspiration just by going south of the border. Well, it's and, true. And, and as compared to other race and ethnicities, Latinos still have the higher rates, highest rates of mm-hmm. church attendance and mm-hmm. belief and in, in religion in their daily life of mm-hmm. any uh, group in America. Matt, I'm curious about the future of language in the United States. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering what Latinos think, because in 20 years, a quarter of our population is going to be Spanish. Are Latinos, are they thinking of assimilation means teach your kids to speak English? Or is the vision America will be a bilingual country? Or is the vision, we're going to turn this country into a Spanish-speaking country like it was uh, before uh, these uh, (laughs) Europeans came in? When we were here first, no. The the third one, absolutely not. I think that's a trope that's often used on the right in terms of saying that Latinos... That we're going to, like, our kids are going to be speaking Spanish? Yeah, that, you know, we're going to try and uh, take over the country and change the culture. You know, when you look at polling data, public opinion data of Latinos, especially among immigrants... There's almost a universal interest in learning English. It is the language of this country, and to be the most successful, you need to have that. Well, the, the problem is there's not as many programs as there used to be in the old days for those immigrants from Europe. You know, public school was started as a program to teach the children of immigrants English. A hundred years ago, we aggressively taught new immigrants That's to right. stop speaking Italian, you're going to speak or English. German or whatever the language was. And this was a way that we could ensure, and we had these very high rates of English proficiency by the second generation, the U.S. born. Because I love a melting pot country, but I like a melting pot country filled with a celebration of different ethnicities that are embracing the commonalities of that culture. I think you've described exactly what the Latino, especially the Latino immigrant population as America is about. They want to maintain their own diversity of their uh-huh. culture and our, our customs. But absolutely, we find very high uh, support for wanting to learn English, wanting to celebrate the 4th of July. Matt Barreto is our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves as we take a closer look at how Hispanic cultures have become a major part of the United States and how their numbers and influence are impacting the political landscape. Matt is a founder of the public opinion research firm called Latino Decisions. His book on the growth of the Hispanic demographic in the United States is called Latino America. Matt, do you think the Latino community in America five generations from now would be better off uh, speaking English as a first language in our country or as a second language? I think that the Latino community will probably always remain bilingual. And we find that U.S.-born children of immigrants do speak English as a first language, but in communicating with their parents, with their Mm -hmm. grandparents at family gatherings, they still Mm -hmm. maintain Spanish. And so Mm -hmm. immigrants are probably always going to be, of course, by definition, English as a second language, Mm -hmm. but they have that strong desire to learn English. I think you'll continue to see that bilingualism because it allows people to remember their culture, to celebrate their home country, but have English as a first language to communicate and, and be a part of America. This has been such a fascinating conversation. It's a travel show. We haven't even talked about travel directly. As I travel around our country, if I want to enjoy being exposed to this slice of our demographic mix, what's a good travel tip? Well, you know that I think everybody thinks they can go to places like Los Angeles or Miami and really immerse themselves in Latino culture. And that's true. You can go in places in East Los Angeles or Little Havana in Miami and really immerse yourself. But I'd recommend that people start to check out some of the newer destinations, whether it's Atlanta, Charlotte, North Carolina, or even places uh, in Washington state that have huge and growing Latino populations. The population is growing across the United States, and there are really vibrant Latino communities to be found here. And this is a United States Latino culture beyond just an imported south of the border culture? That's exactly right. It's a mixing of their parents, themselves, America, 
Latin America, and that's one of the things that's the most uh, vibrant and exciting about that. I love it. Matt Barreto, thank you so much, and best wishes with your book, Latino America. Thank you, Rick. This was a real pleasure. While Hispanic numbers are starting to grow in the southeast of the United States, that region also has a distinctive minority population of its own. It's along the coastal lowlands between Charleston and Savannah. That's where the Gullah people live, and they still speak a Creole dialect that includes elements from their ancestral homeland in Africa. Up next, it's highlights of the low country in South Carolina on Travel with Rick Steves. If you relocate to the coast of South Carolina from the chilly north, there are a few things you'll have to get used to, like sharing a golf course with alligators or learning that the barbecue you're invited to is really an oyster roast. Tour guide Rick Garman moved south from Washington, D.C. and settled in Hilton Head Island, and he's found plenty of interesting things to explore in Carolina's Low Country. He joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves with highlights of the Low Country and some great ideas for a weekend getaway. Rick, thanks for being here. Glad to be here, Rick. Now, why is the Low Country called the Low Country, and why would anybody want to visit? Low Country is uh, along the coast of South Carolina, between Charleston and Savannah. Uh, and the low country is called that for two reasons. One, in the state of South Carolina or anything the East Coast, you've got the mountains, you've got the Piedmont, and then you have the coastal plain. So anything along the coast could be considered low country. But in the case of South Carolina and the low country, you also have a lot of tidal marshes and you have a lot of tidal estuaries. So it really is very much like the low country in the Netherlands, where some of it is right at sea level or seemingly below sea level. So it's got two meanings. Now, you live on Hilton Head Island. I do, and that's considered a resort. It's actually a wonderful island, second largest island on the East Coast, only Long Island is bigger. It's 12 miles long by 5 miles wide, Uh, and it's considered a family uh, resort area with 12 miles of sandy beaches, and it has an annual golf tournament that people see on TV with, you know, all the professional golfers and everything. But it also makes a great base for exploring the corner of South Carolina that's really the, the heart of the low country. Now, i got to say, when somebody says low country and the eastern seaboard, I can't help think in violent weather and uh, huge waves. How is Hilton Head Island surviving uh, the weather these days? Has it been in the news? Well, yeah, the, the funny thing is, when I tell people this, they never believe it, but the last hurricane that came through that area was 1893. Whoa, that's a blessed little corner of the eastern it seaboard. It is. We want it to keep that way, too. But uh, if you look at a map, uh, the hurricanes that come up the coast, they miss us because we're a little indented, and then they go up and they smack North Carolina. Wow. Now, you got alligators in your backyard. We do. Not as many as Florida, but people are surprised that... Uh, That part of South Carolina is coastal. It's semi-tropical. In fact, in the winter, our temperatures are usually in the low 60s as highs. And there's a lot of tidal water, which the water is always warmer because of the Gulf Stream. And it's estimated that South Carolina has a population of about 100,000 alligators. 100,000. So now, do you have to actually be careful of that if you're out messing around in the ponds? You have to be careful. And of course, uh, just like any place else with alligators, they have special rules for golfers. I don't know if you know any golfers, but golfers are very serious. They don't want to take a penalty shot or anything like that. So they have to tell them if the golf ball went near the alligator, you get to drop another ball. You don't have to go over the alligator and get it back. (laughs) People do that occasionally. That is commitment to the game, I'll tell you. Now, if I was going to spend three or four days just absorbing the culture of the low country, what would I want to do? Part of the low country I'm talking about here is between Charleston and Savannah. So a lot of people, what they do is they they kind of bookend Charleston and Savannah and spend a day or two in the low country. The other opposite extreme is a lot of people head right to Hilton Head or something like that for a week-long vacation, and then they go out and do day trips. 
there's a couple places to do day trips in the area between Hilton Head, you know, in Savannah and, and mm-hmm. Charleston. And uh, one of the biggest little cities that's interesting is Beaufort. And then there's a little small town called Bluffton that's very mm-hmm. interesting. Uh, we don't have any big plantations in our area, but we do have a lot of historic sites. And we have a lot of sites that relate to uh, the time period around the Civil War, before the Civil War, with, especially with slavery and then the Civil Rights Movement afterwards. Now, Beaufort is famous for its antebellum architecture. Uh, Explain what antebellum is and what you'd find in Beaufort. Antebellum is basically the time before the war, and in this case, it's the Civil War we're talking about. Uh, and Beaufort is, uh, it was the only big city between Savannah and Charleston back in the old days. So a lot of planters would live in a city. They wouldn't live on their plantations because hmm. the plantations were in terrible areas as far as malaria and swamps and so forth. Ah. So they would go and live in the city. So the richest people of the day would call Beaufort their home rather than their plantations in the country. If they didn't have a home in Charleston or or Savannah, yes, Beaufort. And uh, everybody's probably seen some of the homes from Beaufort. If you remember the movie Big Chill, Mm -hmm. that was filmed in Title Home, which is a a wonderful plantation-type home in downtown Beaufort. It was actually just for sale recently for over $4 million. But if you remember the Big Chill, that's the kind of style of homes that you would see in antebellum. If you had less than $4 million, I suppose you could find some of these that are elegant B&Bs or guest houses and actually sleep in one. Especially in Beaufort, yes. They've done a great job restoring their downtown area. It's a very small town in some ways, but it's very beautiful and does have a wonderful uh, waterfront park they've just renovated in the last couple of years. This is Travel with Rick Steves. As we do every week for an hour, we take you traveling. And today we're traveling to South Carolina's Low Country with the help of Rick Garman. And Rick Garman is a tour guide who calls South Carolina's Low Country home. Uh, Rick, if I wanted to find some classic southern fishing village, what would be a good one? I think Bluffton's a, a great example of that. I mean, in some ways, if you go to Bluffton, people have remarked that it reminds them sort of of Key West. Now, it's nothing like Key West. It's very small, but today it's very artsy. In past years, 100 years ago, there were a half a dozen oyster shucking companies there. Today, there's one. In fact, the only oyster shucking company left in uh, South Carolina is in, in Bluffton. Hmm. And uh, they, every morning, they're there in, in the back room shucking oysters that they've taken out of the local rivers and, and so forth. And uh, the downtown has not many homes before Civil War because it was burned. But afterwards, they, they built in the old style. And it's really a fishing village type thing. And, uh, so another, you still have that 100-year-old ambiance or something? You or? do. And the other thing, surprisingly, is in Beaufort and around Beaufort, there's a lot of shrimping and a lot of shrimp boats. In fact, Forrest Gump, the shrimping boats that were filmed in Forrest Gump were not on the Gulf Coast. They were around Beaufort. Those are vivid images. So that was, I thought that was down in the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah, because uh, <laughs> that's what they wanted you to think in Hollywood. But yeah, they, were, not, they were filmed around the Beaufort area. The low country of South Carolina. There's a lot of public natural lands, uh, state parks and so on. What should we know about if we're planning a trip to South Carolina's low country when it comes to visiting some state parks? There's a couple national parks, or mm-hmm. actually not national parks, National Wildlife Refuge, Savannah Wildlife Refuge, and Pinckney Island is also part of that. Pinckney Island is right by Hilton Head, uh, and they were set up as national wildlife refuges for the flyways because the, the geese and the ducks that fly up and down the east coast, of, you know, from all the way to the Caribbean to Canada, stopped in those areas because of the wetlands. So if you're a birder, these are good places it's a to birder, go. especially in uh, the February-March time period. But mm-hmm. other than that, they're also good areas to go to because they have lagoons, and lagoons have other shorebirds, ibises, and then they have alligators. Turtles? Turtles are a big deal, especially in Hilton Head. The turtles come ashore to nest usually in the summer months. Uh, we're talking May through August or so. Even though it's a big resort and mm-hmm. summer is the big time for people to be at the beach, there are special rules that uh, you can't have your lights on at night and so forth. You can't have your porch lights on and everything because the turtles come on shore. 
they try to find a place to nest, and then a couple months later, the little hatchlings come out, and they try to make their way to the, the water, and if there's other lights, they're distracted. So there are patrols to make sure people aren't out there disturbing them and digging them up, and there are patrols to make sure you don't have the lights on. Now, we're talking about South Carolina, and you live in South Carolina, yes. but you don't sound like a Southerner. That's because I'm originally from away, as they would say, and uh, away usually means up north. Uh, there's a couple things about that. I mean, if you can imagine any place that has a, a culture of their own, uh, that's been inundated by new people in their area, sort of like you people out here try to keep the Californians away maybe. The people in that area, they have their own culture. They have their own style. And they, they love where they're, they're living. So how are you received? I um, mean, because every time you open your mouth, they're going to think you're from away. They know I'm from away, yes. <laughs> um, I, it's a, it's a, you're just a necessary evil? I think we all get along fine, but there's, there's sort of an un, uneasy truce at times. Sometimes you'll see the, the bumper stickers that say, we don't care what y'all did up north, you know. <laughs> and so, you know, I can understand that completely. Now, when you talk about uh, South Carolina and especially the low country, there's a dark history here, too. What's the slave connection? This area of South Carolina didn't grow cotton. They found out that uh, rice, South Carolina rice, was tremendously worthwhile to grow here. They could export it. Um, and, of course, we have a lot of tidal marshes. So what they would do is they'd use tidal irrigation, Freshwater is lighter than salt water, so it floats on top of the salt water. So when you have the tides, the salt water brings the water in, but the fresh water can be used to go through the gates and, and use as irrigation. It's a very complex system, but it actually works. Very clever if you don't have steam engines. Or very clever. Like to help now, out. the interesting thing, though, is that they found out early on that many of the slaves that came from West Africa already knew about tidal irrigation because they'd been growing rice for thousands of years in Western Africa. And so what happened was they, they either found slaves that had this kind of background or they deliberately imported slaves from West Africa that had those skills. They would actually think what skills they had in Africa and plant them where they needed to be with those skills A in lot America. of research indicates that that's some of the planning Amazing. that went on. And so what happened was, in many ways, the, uh, the West African slaves are the ones that built these massive plantations, these rice plantations, there's actually none in the area that I'm talking about because everything has gone by the wayside. But these were like skilled labor. Were they, did they have an advantage over other slaves? You would hope that they would have an advantage, but all the research I've seen is that this was a really horrible place to work. We're talking malarial swamps. We're talking a lot of diseases and so forth. As I mentioned, uh, the owners quite often wanted to live in the cities, so the only people they left on the plantations were the overseer and then the driver who was the lead slave and then the slaves that were working. Are there remnants of this slave culture that survived to this day? Yeah, actually, it's one of the most interesting aspects of South Carolina and maybe American history. Because the, there was very little interaction with Anglo, white, European-type settlers, a lot of the slaves that were brought over really were pretty kept to themselves and didn't pick up a lot of English language and so forth. So today, even, there's a culture that's called Gullah. And Gula. G-U-L-L-A-H, Gula. Okay. Mm -hmm. And uh, basically, the true Gulas still speak a sort of a Creole-type language that's a mixture between African, you know, tribal languages and English and so forth. It's actually been recognized as sort of a, a separate language. And the culture is certainly separate. Um, and even after the war, when some of the Gula people that were freed were given some properties and they stayed there, I mean, there wasn't a lot of prosperity in that area because right. it, was, it was very difficult to work. Even the landowner's going to be struggling. Everybody was struggling there. Right. And uh, today, if you go down, there's a few places to really capture this. So you can experience this as a visitor today. You can connect with the Gula culture. You can. It's actually been named a, a corridor, a historical corridor up mm -hmm. and down the coast. And there's some National Park Service things they're doing. But I think one of the best things to do is there's three or four festivals each year in this area where they celebrate the Gula culture. 
And, uh, you know, there's one in Hilton Head in, you know, January. There's one in Beaufort in May. Probably the best one is the one at the Penn Center in the fall. So if we're going to the low country of South Carolina, we should look in advance and see what's going on with the Gula people in order to hit it during a festival. Yes. And I would like to talk about the Penn Center for a second, if mm-hmm. you would. It's a sad but great part of the United States history. In 1862, some abolitionists and teachers and so forth from Pennsylvania came down to St. Helena Island, which is in uh, the Low Country, and founded the first school for freed slaves. Now, this was before the Emancipation Proclamation. The Union troops had taken over the coastal areas, and they were starting to free a lot of the slaves that were in the plantations and didn't know exactly what to do with them at that point. There was no authority from the president or anything. Mm -hmm. And so some of these abolitionists came down, formed a school to teach the freed slaves English and maybe some skills and trades and so forth. That actually, that Penn Center was the first one in the South. And then after that, it remained a school for uh, African-Americans until about 1948, when finally in the South, uh, including South Carolina, they started having schools that went beyond 6th or 7th grade for African-Americans. It's been that recent, yes. So this goes way back into the very beginnings of the civil rights sort of struggles. The great thing about the Penn Center is it still exists today. It's a national historic site and so forth. But when they ceased to be a school, they turned into more of a community center and Mm -hmm. a civil rights center. So Mm -hmm. it has that aspect of history. In fact, Martin Luther King held a number of strategic meetings there. It was one of the few places in the South that both white and black activists felt safe getting together and discussing what they would do about civil rights and so forth. And then lately in the last 20 years or so, it's morphed into being a center, a community center for the area, and also uh, a center for helping the Gula population, you know, remain true to its roots. Okay, so the Penn Center at St. Helena Island is a place that we can visit any time of year to get a little connection with both the civil rights uh, era struggles and the Gula people. Yes, and it's open, I think, every day, but Sunday or something like that. Rick Garman's our guide to the South Carolina Lowcountry right now on Travel with Rick Steves. You can add your own observations and recommendations for enjoying the Lowcountry or anywhere. Look in the radio section at ricksteves.com and click on the link to the radio forum where it says participate in the show. So, Rick, they've got this uh, amazing heritage where civil rights leaders, even Martin Luther King, got together and, and worked for freedom today after so much struggle and so many years have passed. When you're in South Carolina in the low country, do you feel a gap between black and white communities? Uh, what's what's the uh, the reality there? That's a great question because, you know, as an outsider, you know, I'm observing, uh, you know, and I, I feel that in many ways there's people that get along very well, uh, black, white, and so forth, because they've lived there their entire lives. But in some ways, they have roles, too. And uh, I think one of the things that's interesting about this area is you have really three groups. You've got the blacks that are descendants of, you know, freed slaves from 150 years ago. You have a lot of long-term local, you know, whites that have been there. And then you've got a lot of people that have inundated this area from up north. And I'd like to just say three names to sort of, you know, talk about this. Pat Conroy is probably known to people. He's a very good author. His father was in the military, stationed at Paris Island in the Marine Corps base right there in this area. So he ended up staying here, going to the Citadel, and wrote books about it. In fact, some of his best books were written about this area, the Rivers Wide and the Prince of Tides and so forth. He's a great example of the kind of people that come in and really appreciate the the natural beauty and and the wonder of, of the area. And then I think also of the people that have lived here for generation after generation on the white side, you know, they were hardworking, hardscrabble kind of people. And I think of somebody like uh, the Toomer family, who are the people who own the Bluffton Oyster Company. And they've been oystermen for 
you know, over 100 years. Most of the people they employ are African-Americans. And this is one of the things I think that's interesting to people coming into the area. African-Americans had certain jobs where they could be independent, even in bad times. And one of them was being an oysterman. And so uh, it's a wonderful to see the symbiotic relationship. And I'm not saying it's perfect, mm-hmm. but I think it's uh, on, a, on a people-to-people level, sometimes I think these kind of areas of the South may actually be in pretty good shape as far as understanding that people are people. And uh, culturally, I think there's still a lot of divides that, you know, we all have to go through. And economically? And economically, yes. That is interesting. I hadn't thought about that, but you would have three parts of the demographic and economic social makeup. You'd have the black families that have been in their community there ever since days of slavery. You've got the former slave owners and the people who used to, you know, be the the white community there, hardworking and uh, dedicated to their community. And then you've got all the people from away, you, away who have come in and that <laughs> would be generally, everything, right? And, and then uh, everybody today is figuring it out. So it, it sounds like a, a great place to go visit and uh, learn from. I've been talking with Rick Garman. We're learning about South Carolina's low country. And Rick, uh, we've been so much to talk about on South Carolina's low country. We haven't had a chance to talk about the food very much. There's something called the low country boil. Let's just finish our discussion on the low country here with something tasty. What's a low country boil? There's two specialty things in that area. One is the low country boil and the other is an oyster roast. And they're both very local. A low country boil is basically, you know, the catch of the sea. You know, it's, it's usually shrimp, has to be local caught shrimp, not something imported and frozen. And then uh, maybe some other fish that's caught or whatever, corn on the cob, some, you know, red skin potatoes cut up, things like that, all put into a, a pot and boiled. Mm-hmm. Uh, doesn't sound very exciting, but it's great. It really I bet is. it is. The other thing is an oyster roast. And now this area is famous for their oysters. They used to export them to the fancy restaurants in New York and so forth. Hmm. But the oysters here are actually... They're in mud banks in in the streams, and so they try to grow in clusters. And you get some very select oysters, but quite often what you get are just clusters of oysters. And what they do is they just put them on top of like a a fire, a grill, roast them for a little bit until they start popping. And then you just take a cluster and you eat little, little oysters out of little ones and bigger out of bigger ones. Every place else in the United States you go, you might see fundraisers at firehouses that are barbecues or pig roasts or whatever. In the low country, you're going to see fundraisers at all these kind of places that are either low country boil or more specifically an oyster roast. If you're traveling around at all in the low country and you see that a firehouse or a volunteer organization is, is throwing a you know, volunteer fundraising benefit and they're doing an oyster roast, that's the way to go have it, not necessarily at a restaurant. They, they don't have raw oysters. They actually cook yeah, them. Yeah, but they're somewhere between raw and really cooked because some of them will cook a little more oh, I see. and some will that's cook good, a little yeah. less. and. They're, the ones I like are the ones that are more raw. But, I mean, you have just mm-hmm. a cluster like this, and yeah. you just kind of pop them open. Okay. Sounds like very good advice. Rick Garman, thanks so much. I'm going to put South Carolina's low country on my list. Thanks so much, and happy travels. Glad to be here, Rick. Don't I got a rambling mind. 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 Don't I done jump the fence. Going on down the line. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wolner. We get website support from Andrew Wakeling and Dana Bublitz. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to our colleagues at NPR West for their help this week. You can listen again on demand and find guest information in the details for each week's show. Our radio page is updated weekly at ricksteves.com. We'll see you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Each year, Rick Steves tour guides take free-spirited travelers on escorted tours all over Europe, one small group at a time. 
Choose from three dozen exciting itineraries covering the best of Europe from Ireland to Istanbul, Paris to St. Petersburg, and practically everywhere in between. For a free catalogue and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.